We're carrying on the book of Revelation. We're into the third letter to the church at Pergamum. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast, to, fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on, that, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so third letter. It's impossible to read this letter if you carefully and start looking at the words without realizing um, that it's rife with military language. There's talks of swords and thrones, killing, war, conquering. And clearly what's happening in Pergamum is there's a battle being waged. But the battle, it may not be what you expect, because Jesus comes and he says, in the days of Antipas, so one of the church leaders of Pergamum, and this guy named Antipas, had been killed, he'd been martyred. But do you notice he says, in the days of, which suggests that was before. It happened in the days of, but now there's another problem. It's almost like the church has weathered the external assault of persecution, but a more insidious one of internal corruption is going on that they haven't been quite as diligent about sweeping away, unlike the church in Ephesus, remember? That was really good at rooting out heresy. It seems the church in Pergamum was not so good. And all this language about war and what the war is and who's battling and what's happening is very important because the letter tells a story about a war that's going on and specifically the sorts of ways that different groups try to conquer. How does the world try to conquer? And then how does God try to conquer? And then what is the reward for the one who comes out on God's side? But before we jump into those three things, let's talk about Pergamum as a city. Because we've been doing this, it's important that we always anchor the letter in the historical context of the time. And Pergamum is a city that is incredibly wealthy. It's located, and we'll have a bunch of slides going, so we'll put the first one up. This is, it's, if you can see it, it was on a hill, on a cone-shaped hill, right at the top is where the city was located. It was a beautiful thing to behold. It was the center of culture, ideas, politics, religion. The next slide, there's a 15,000-person amphitheater. 15,000, that's a lot in the ancient world. It looks quite steep. Don't fall down, because they'll never find you until you hit the Mediterranean. But it's, but it's incredible. It has this beautiful theater in it. Not just that, the next slide shows the second largest library in the ancient world. The first largest was the Great Wonder, the library at Alexandria in Egypt. Pergamum had a library with 200,000 books in it, which is a lot at any time, but especially in the ancient world. So it's a center of ideas. But it's also a center for religion. Like most places, you see, religion, there's no separation of church and state in the ancient world. Religion was tied to everything. 
And so you find in Pergamum temples for just about everything. The temple to Athena. This one is a beautiful little picture, actually. Pop that one up. The temple to Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war, but mostly wisdom. Um, you had the temple to Dionysus, which is the god of wine, pleasure. So you have wisdom, pleasure. You have the temple to Demeter, which was, this is more of a sanctuary, hard to see it. I mean, the ancient ruins are a bit tougher to grasp, but it's, Demeter was the god of agriculture and of grain. So you have wisdom, wine, pleasure, food. But you also had um, temples to Augustus and Domitian, so to, to politics, to emperors. So you have all of these things fighting for your attention in, the, in, in Pergamum. And not just this, the, there's a, the, probably two, two things that really set Pergamum out in the ancient world was the sanctuary here, this next one, to Asclepios. Now, Asclepios is the god of medicine. So this is, uh, in the modern context, would be like Lourdes. You know, everybody goes to get healed at a certain place. Um, this was a center of healing in the ancient world. You have a problem, go to Pergamum. Because Asclepios, being this medical doctor, his symbol was snake. You know, the caduceus, those intertwined snakes that still exist? Well, that's an ancient symbol, and no different than Asclepios. He was, the, there are serpents all over. And when you went to this place, there were hot springs and, and, and um, spas that you, would sit, you could sit in. And we could have a picture of one of them that's still there. It still has water in it. I don't know if it's bathable, but, um, but it was a marvel of, marvel of engineering. So they arranged it so that the water would fill and rise and fall on its own while they, they controlled it. And then after you were done bathing, you would go through a narrow hallway, pitch black, and there were holes drilled into the walls, and on the other side of the walls, priests would whisper words of healing to you as you walked through. Interesting. So it's all, right? They're trying to capture the senses. And this tunnel gave way to a, a big solarium. And in that solarium, you would be given a concoction to drink. You'd be drugged. You would then fall asleep for a period of time. And as you lay on the floor in the solarium, bathing in the light, hundreds and hundreds of non-lethal snakes would walk or squirm over you. There's, it was loaded with snakes. Because the idea was that the snakes, some, there was healing power in the snakes. Um, I know, cringeworthy. But that's what it was. So it's a center of healing as well. And then at the very top of the, temp, of the, the city, which in the very first picture we, we saw, um, at the very top was the temple of Zeus, which is common. Ancient world, Zeus was king, right? Or Jupiter in the Roman world. And he would sit, in the, the, they would sit right on the top of the hill. You'd see it. And in Berlin, we have this next picture. Sorry. Uh, Berlin has, in Berlin, they have a remodel of it. This is what it would have looked like, the sanctuary of Pergamum for Zeus. And when Satan says, I know where you live, the place of Satan's throne, is it possible? That's looking at this, the temple straight on. Doesn't it look like you could sit in the middle there with your arms on the armrests? And the idea, we think, was Jesus pointing out the fact that from looking up to the city, it looks like there's a throne on the top. Is that what's going on? We don't know. But another important thing, the last thing I'll say about Pergamum is this. It was a very important city. And as a result, you've seen already, cities got some favors from Rome for being important and for being loyal. Pergamum had the very unique pleasure of having something called the right of jus gladii. Now, in, in Latin, that means the right of the sword. So you'll notice that when Jesus dies, we're going to be doing Easter soon, talking about the Easter story. The Jews can't kill Jesus themselves because Rome says nobody can, commit, can execute people in the Roman Empire except Rome. 
So the Jews don't have the right to kill anybody. So they have to take him to Pilate to be killed. But Pergamum had the right to kill anybody they wanted. They had the right of the sword. And that is an important thing because when Christ shows up and says, I'm the one who holds the sword, see, there's a point, right? There's, there's a connection here. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is. But he had the right of the sword. So all the letters saying there's a battle and it's being waged not physically in the streets, but it's being waged for your mind and for your hearts. And this is a far more difficult battle to win for the church you're going to see. So we're going to look very quickly now because that's, the, that's the only the intro. Um, three things. We're going to look at how the world wages war against the church, how God and Christ wages war to win us, and then what the rewards are for conquering. Okay? So the world's waging war, Christ's, and then the rewards. So first, how does the world do it? Now, I said earlier, it looks like physical persecution is not as big an issue in Pergamum, but this, there's this, this heresy and these group of people in the church that have started teaching something differently. And this is, one thing you notice if you study history is the church, unfortunately, does much better at preserving their faith and their purity when they know who they're fighting. When the, when the government is most opposed to the church, the church does its best work of keeping the faith. The most dangerous parts, and we, when I preach through judges and later in the year, you're going to see, the most dangerous place for the church to be is in a country where we have freedom. And I know we're in that spot. Because that's the slow and steady way of eroding the faith. C.S. Lewis in, um, well, a lot of places, but this was in Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is a book that's made up of um, a demon trying to give his nephew, demon, some advice on how to pervert uh, a Christian away from the faith, to drag him away. And he says this, You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, enemy being God in this backwards world. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without millstones, without signposts. And this is exactly what is happening in Pergamum, that the obvious enemy of persecution isn't there, but there's a more subtle enemy that is finding its way in. And remember, the subtlest enemies are, the reason they're so effective is because they look, the counterfeit is really good. They look almost like the authentic thing. And as a result, we slip and we fall into it. And in Pergamum, the, the issue, what the force that is trying to get the church away from God is a, is a force that is trying to get the church to accommodate. Touch, you can be involved in the culture, get close to it. And it uses, um, and he calls them the Balaamites, or Balaam, the people of Balaam, and Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans is just a big word for the people who follow Nicholas, right? If you follow Carl, you'd be a Carlitan? I don't know what you'd be. Don't do that, though. And so there's these groups, and he puts them together, and it seems like they're the same, they, they believe the same thing. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but we know a lot about Balaam. And so we can learn what this group was teaching and why Christ had such a problem with it. And to do that, first, let's start with their names. If you, know, if you can have access to, a, if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, um, the next best thing is have access to a good commentary 
or to a lexicon as a Christian and be able to check out words because names are important. The word Balaam, we'll put it on the screen, it's a compound word. And it is the word Baal, which means Lord or conqueror, and people, Am, Baal Am in Hebrew. Interestingly enough, Nicolaitan comes from Nikon for Nicholas and Laos, Nikolaos. Nikon means conqueror, Laos means people. So right away, if you know your languages, which you don't necessarily, but you've got me to help you, you know right away that someone is trying to conquer the people in Pergamum, right? Not by accident, this wording. And the way they're conquering, the way they're trying to do it, the best way to understand it is to know who Balaam was. And when you look in the book of Numbers and you learn about Balaam, you find out some interesting things. Moab, this other nation to the east of Israel, has a beef with Israel and wants to beat them in a war, but they know they can't defeat Israel. Balak is their king. Balak then says, well, I need to do something because I can't beat them one-on-one, face-to-face on the battlefield. So I'm going to get a prophet named Balaam, and I'm going to pay him to curse my enemy. That way, maybe I can overcome Israel in this way. Of course, if you know your story, you realize for four different times he tries to curse Israel, but it keeps coming out as a blessing. Can't do it. The king, Balak, gets sick of Balaam and says, I'm done, and he leaves. And you think it's all done until you find out later that Israel eventually does fall. But the way they fall is not through battle, but through accommodation. They slowly become just like Moab, and you find out that it was Balaam's doing. That before he left the king, he gave him some advice and said, if you can't beat them in a front-to-front war, as they couldn't beat Pergamum, right, because they endured the physical persecution, the next best thing is seduce them because they're weak. They're appetites, they're human, they're men. And so he says, best thing you can do is flood them with your women and make them eat the food sacrificed to your idols. Because those, no, don't need that up there. Because those things, that's the way into the heart. Women and food and worship of other animals, of other gods. This is the way to do it. And Israel falls for it. And so when Christ shows up and he says to them that somebody has the teaching of Balaam in their church, and he says, they put a st- um, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, you're beginning to see what these people are doing is this. And it sounds so good because it's so close to being biblical. So close. They say, listen, you're saved, church. You're saved. Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing. So sleep with whoever you want. Touch what you'd like. Eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It's the spirit and the body, different things. Don't worry about it. Just go. And that is, that sounds, it's not just, it doesn't sound a little biblical, because it sort of does, right? Paul seems to say something like that in 1 Corinthians 8. Eat food, sacrifice idols, it's okay, right? And if you read only that, you think, geez, maybe these guys know what they're talking about. And this is rife in the world. Every, every Canadian has, a, and I'm saying this very literally, I think every Canadian has a tendency to believe this. There's a, a meme we'll put up on the screen. I found this yesterday while I was just on social media. This is what it says. Some Eastern religion, this is typical of Eastern religions as well, says sex, is, sex in the body is fine, money in the pocket is fine. The only, they only become trouble if they enter your mind. So, you see the lie. This is the Nicolaitan lie. This is the Balaamite lie. This is the Gnostic lie, if you know your ancient, ancient heresies. The lie of, is continually to say, what you do with your body and your mind are separate. So cheat on your wife, it's okay. You can do that because body's in the room, soul is outside. Look at pornography. It's only your eyes. Your soul is out there. Spend your money any way you want because it doesn't affect your soul. It's just money. 
It's not true. It's a lie. But that's the lie that is so near the truth. Because Paul says, right? 1 Corinthians 8, it's okay because food sacrificed to idol is nothing. But if you read on, he then says in chapter 10, but the food may be nothing, but the ceremony is very real. And so it's one thing to find food in a market that says halal meat on it and eat it. It's another thing to go to the ceremony and then watch it be sacrificed and then eat it as part of the ceremony. And because you and I are weak, we shouldn't do that. In fact, when the Council of Israel, Acts 15, all the apostles of Israel for the first big uh, conference in church history gets together, it's interesting. They get together to ask, what's the problem? What are we going to do with these non-Jews becoming Christians? So many Greeks and Gentiles becoming Christians. What are we going to do? How are we going to keep it from flying off the rails? And they decide there's only two things they should do. Don't sleep around and don't eat food sacrificed to idols. The exact two things that this group is saying to do. And so it sounds so close, doesn't it? So near the truth. And this is the danger you as a Christian and we as a church have. I remember hearing, and I'm not sure if it's true, but it sounds right, so I'm going to use it, is that if you were to go up to a piano and pull the top off and then sing into the, into the piano, only the string that is tuned to the, the note that you're singing on would vibrate. If that is true, then it's a really good illustration to what the devil, what the enemy is doing in the church. He pulls back the lid of you and of the church and sings into it. And whatever note starts, starts to vibrate, he says, ah, that's the one I'm going to pluck. This church is really good at snuffing out heresy. I'm going to make them legalists. I'm going to make them haters. This church is really loving, really welcoming. I'm going to make them so open and licentious, they're going to be just like the culture. And he plays and he plucks that chord and he masters it. And he plays us. He's the piper leading us to our ruin. And this is the danger of this, of how so close it gets. And the church in Pergamum seems to have wanted to fit in. They saw their friend Antipas killed. And sometimes you get strengthened by that. But other times you say, I don't want that to happen to me. So instead of getting hardened, they soften and say, well, how can we make this relationship with the world work? How can they long for comfort, for accommodation, which aren't bad in and of themselves. But you see how they can go bad if they're left to go as they are. So they have the right of the sword as a city to kill, and they use it to kill the church. And Christ shows up and says, that's how you're conquering, which is another lie, right? The lie, of course, is if your body is dead, they have won. And it's just not true. But that's what you believe. If you don't believe in God, then you're the kind of person who will say, why would you ever go as a missionary to Pakistan or to a place that, where you could be killed? Why would you do that? You have a family at home. What are you doing? One life to live. Why would you waste it? And that is specifically a materialistic, modern, Western argument because they don't believe there's anything but this life, so they'll fight like a tiger to keep it. But there's a different approach, right? The church has a different opinion. And in comes Christ with his sword, and he says that's how you conquer through this subtle way of per perverting people away from truth. But here's how God does it. So how does God conquer? Notice in all the letters, all the letters to the churches in, in, in Revelation, Christ gives a suggestion. He tells them what to do. He says, here's the situation. Here's how things are not good. And then he says, now do this. In Ephesus, for instance, it was remember. Remember from where you have fallen. To Smyrna, it was be faithful unto death. To this church, it's two words in Greek and in English. Not as long as Jesus, not as short as Jesus wept, but it's two words only. Therefore, repent. Metaneo um, which 
He is saying, repent. That is the way that we are to conquer the world. Repentance. Which seems kind of counterintuitive because as we saw with Ephesus and as we saw in the church over COVID, don't you want to fight for your rights? The last thing you want is to give up. You think when there's a threat, you want to mobilize. You want to get things done. You want to organize. You want to rally. You want to get it done. And he says, repent. First thing. And the reason he does it is because he understands that before, before God will ever ask you to conquer anything, he will first conquer you. Okay? Before he says, go out and conquer the world, go out and change everything, because that's the assumption, right? I can't come to church. I'm not, my life isn't right. I haven't got things in order. And God says, no, I must conquer your heart first. When I've conquered you through repentance, then you can go and conquer, but not before. Um, you've all heard the... Um, I'm sure you've all, many of you have heard this, this great, well, great, interesting song, popular song by Leonard Cohen called Hallelujah, right? The second verse says this, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair, she broke your throne, and she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah. Now, not a Christian song, not a Christian, should not be sung in church. How, let's not make that clear. However, However, that last line is brilliant. From your lips she drew the hallelujah. The world, everybody, everything you do is trying to draw worship from you. Starbucks, I love, come. Give me your money. Your life will be better if a Starbucks is in your hand. And the world does the same thing. Your life will be better. Stop dying for your faith. Just give in. Just give in. Everything is trying to draw hallelujah from you. Somehow. Hallelujah, Hebrew for praise the Lord, just to make sure everybody knows. So, how is it that God draws the hallelujah from us? Because it's not through tying us to the kitchen chair and cutting our hair and dragging us. See, Christ can ravish you, but he will not. He'll prefer to woo instead of ravish. And he says, I will win you with beauty. Beauty. And not just any beauty. Now, let's think about this idea of beauty first. First, every human wants beautiful things. When you go on vacation, you never say, let's go to downtown, like, let's go where the slums are. Not usually. If you're a missionary, well done, you do. But very few others. Most people say, let's go to beautiful places, beaches, mountains, galleries. If you have a home, you don't let it stay the way it is. Don't you plant a garden? Don't you paint the walls, put up paintings? My goodness, early, early humans carved and painted in caves. We are prone to, to, to chase beauty, but not just chase beauty, beautiful things, but to chase beauty itself. Every time we're looking at beautiful things, we're actually looking for something beyond the beauty. We're looking for the beautiful maker behind it. You see a great painting, you don't say, nice painting. You say, who painted that? Because you want to know what kind of a heart would make that painting. Let me learn more about Van Gogh. Let me learn more about Leonard Cohen. Whatever the beautiful thing is you see. And so, with that... Look at, look, look at how we know this. Think about some of these people who have been our artists in the world. Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, poet and thinker and such, says this. It's a, it's a poem. He thought it happier to be dead, to die for beauty, than live for bread. So, he understood something. That it's not just beautiful things, but beauty is actually worth dying for. That's pretty deep, right? You wouldn't think I'd die for a poem or for a vacation. But what's he getting at? 
Well, look at another poet, Emily Dickinson. Beauty crowds me until, until I die. Beauty, mercy have on me. But if I expire today, let it be in the sight of thee. It's another one saying, let me die in the presence of beauty. Beauty is worth chasing, worth dying for. Does that sound extreme? Maybe. It may sound extreme to you, but it's not extreme. It's actually the nature of humanity. Just as birds are prone to instinctually search for the south and fly to warmer climates, humanity is geared to find the source of beauty for whatever reason. Well, not whatever reason. I know exactly the reason, I think. And this is why. The Bible says the reason you have that in you is not because, I mean, think, you can ask any materialist uh, um, skeptic response as to why we seek beauty. But the Bible's claim is you seek beauty because it exists and because you know that in it you'll find everything. Let me explain by reading part of the Bible. Paul in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, it's, a bit, it's 11 verses, but let me read it because it's beautiful what he says. And I'll explain it afterwards. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what, uh, much more will what, is, per, what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's what he's saying. It's brilliant. Paul's saying, imagine the law that came to Moses from Mount Sinai on the tablets, you know, even if you only know Charlton Heston's version, you know. When that happens, that law can only really do a few things to you. One, it first shows you you're a sinner and you can't save yourself because you can't live up to the law. So it's a ministry of condemnation, that's what he's saying. And all it does is say you need a savior. And if even this law, that all it did was remind you of your own fallibility, your own brokenness, it made you feel this big. If even that could make your face shine with beauty, so much so that it had to be veiled. How much more beautiful must be the gospel that comes and says all of that truth that you are inadequate has been undone because Christ has come and been your adequacy. How much more beautiful. And if that's the case, if you stand before the law, you're shining, how much beauty and how radiant will you be as a Christian if you come to the gospel? And so Paul is saying, when you stare at this beauty, your hearts will be conquered. Your hearts will be one. And the reason this, let's think about this. If the gospel is true, that you have eternal life, then are you going to be afraid to die for your faith? No, because the only reason you really fear is because you don't know what comes after. Is the last time I'm going to see my family, all of this. But if he really has the keys of Hades and death, if he really is the one who can raise you, 
then you see the lie of the Balaamites, the lie of the world that says, don't die, don't risk your life for this, is broken. The same allure of sex and money and reputation are broken. Because why do you need the good opinion of an ant when you have the good opinion of the king? And so the gospel comes as ultimately more beautiful, far more beautiful, so that the psalmist becomes true. There's nothing in this world that I need. There's nothing. The world, and it's not a knock on the world. It's a good world. God has made it. With all due respect, there's nothing out there you need at all. And this beauty of the gospel is what does it. And this is why C.S. Lewis, brilliantly again, last time I'll talk about him today, in his essay called The Weight of Glory, says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And it's true. Here we are settling for notches on the bedpost and, rep- and, and promotions and money and for comfort at our homes. And that's all, that we've set our bar so low. We've set our eyes on a beauty that is far too low. There's something more. And yet we let it draw the hallelujah from our lips. So, and this is, right? When you see the gospel, you then become, and this is the last time I'll quote a poet today, is John Donne, Christian poet from many, many moons ago, says famously, batter my heart, three-personed God, that I may rise and stand, or throw me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. When you see the beauty of the gospel, all of these other temptations, the Balaamites, the Nicolaitans, pick, pick a, a temptation, begins to fade because of the beauty of the gospel outweighs it. And so he doesn't drag you. People, wouldn't we like it, right? Wouldn't we love to be just saved by just being against our will, dragged? And yet, God will say, no, I will win you. This is why, off the script, why in Easter, when, when Pilate stands before God, uh, Christ, Christ says, my army is not like yours. They don't fight like you. My kingdom is not like yours. Do you see what he's saying? I could come and like Rome and just make a law and sweep away anything I disagree with and make people obey, but I won't. Instead, I'm going to take longer, but I'm going to win their hearts because when I've won their hearts and not just their daily obedience, but when I win their hearts, you'll never stop them. The church will be able to endure radical persecution and still thrive and grow. And so it's slower, but by winning the heart, he wins us forever. So if that's the means of, of winning, well, what's the reward? He holds out a reward. See, the reward of the world is have comfort. Listen, I love comfort. I don't want to be persecuted. I like Starbucks. I like my fun life. I do. But there's a reward that God holds out. And in this beautiful passage, it's so important, he says there's two things you get if you conquer, if you endure in this life. And those things are, first, the hidden manna, and then he says this white stone. These are cryptic, so we have to unpack them just a little, but I'll try to be brief. First, let's start with manna. The word manna, if you know your Bibles at all, you know it pops up in Scripture. First place is in Exodus 16. Israel is wandering in the wilderness and wants food. And they start to rumble and grumble and say, gosh... Moses, things were a lot better when we were slaves. Because at least when we were slaves in Egypt, we had food and they say meat pots, you know, and leeks and onions. We had all these things. Meat, onions, leeks. I don't know, it's a diet, I guess. But, but they craved it. But you see what they're actually crying out for? We would give up our freedom. We'd rather be slaves but have food. See, this is a very materialistic idea. Give me food. Don't worry about their souls. Just give them food. 
social services in, in our country? Don't worry about their souls. Just give them a home because that will solve the problem. Of course, it doesn't, but that's the cry of the heart. That's what we want. And then in the New Testament, when Christ performs a miracle and feeds thousands in John 5 and 6, you'll notice that for all of chapter 6, they're hounding him for more food. And he eventually has to turn and get a little upset with them and, and lay clear some, some guidelines. And the reason is they believe, if I have food, I have life. And Christ comes radically, and what does he say? I am the bread of life. I am the hidden manna. I am that thing that will sustain you. Stop. You're here, you are willing to sell yourself and prostitute yourself for food, for money, for reputation, when I am the only one that will satisfy you because these other things will leave you. I've had jobs and people get fired from jobs. I was at a place once and after years, a guy was fired after 28 years and he said, how could they do this to me? I'll tell you how they can do it. Because you made that job, your idol. You can't believe now that they treated you like that. But the world will let you down. You see, you can't make anything but God the focus of your attention. And if you want a little historical background, that word hidden there, I think the reason it's there is because there's a tradition in Israel that said that when Babylon came and, and, and invaded in the 6th century, Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it and buried it under Mount Nebo. So, so you know you can go and try to dig it up. Everybody's looking for it. And, um, but he, he dug it up, he, dug it, he buried it, and the, and, the, and the story went that when the Messiah returns, he'll take the hidden manna and he'll feed the people again. He will sustain them. So it looks like Jesus is picking up on that tradition and saying, I am your sustainer, not the food, not, the food, not sex, not idols, none of it. So that's one thing. He offers full, um, full uh, satisfaction. And now that's enough as a reward but he adds it with this other weird thing. I'll give you this white stone with a name on it. Now, scholars will, I think I've counted at least 15 different interpretations of what this means. Because the white stone was used a lot in the ancient world. So what, is it, what does it mean? I'll give you only the two that I think make the most sense, and we'll talk about it. Why it's, it's so, so brilliant. The first one was in cases of law. A jury, remember the jury system was started in Athens in the 6th century BC, so long before uh, England got it and everybody else. And what would happen is a jury would have stones. And I would write, I'd either cast my vote with a white stone for innocent or a black stone for guilty. And sometimes you'd even write the name of the person on it. But either way, the idea, if that's what Jesus has in mind, what he is saying is if you conquer, if you survive, if you hold off the allure of the world, you'll be declared innocent. You will, be, you will get what I've promised you from the beginning. I have kept you innocent, and I, you'll get this. This is the reward. You'll be deemed innocent at the end, of judge, when judgment comes. And the second one, which is, I think, the more accurate one, but brilliant, is in the ancient world, when you, in Rome, uh, if you were invited to a party, you'd be given an invitation. And oftentimes, the invitation would be a white stone with the name on it. And that would be your admission into the party. And if you didn't have it, you don't get in. So, again, think of this. There's this other world that is looms beyond the one you're in. And if you endure, even to the point of death, then you will find the ticket will be waiting for you. Now, whose name is written on it? This is a big debate, because it's not clear. Is the name yours as a Christian on it? Or is it the name of Christ on it? It doesn't really matter. Let's not split the church because of it. But here's what the differences would be. If it's your name, then here's what you know. Christ has written a spot for you specifically to come 
Not generally for Redeemer Church and anyone who pays dues. You know, it's for you. It's an intimacy. But I think, it, I think if it's Christ's name on it, it's even more impactful. Because what it means is that you go to the party and you only get in because of his name, not yours. Because he has, the, has overcome. Because you and I will submit to the culture. Listen, we're all sinners. I've said it before. I can't go to a, a coffee shop and come out of it smelling like anything but coffee. It doesn't matter if I spent the whole time reading the Bible and praying. I'm going to smell like the culture because I'm in it. All of you binge watch something on Netflix you shouldn't. All of you post something you shouldn't. All of you have opinions you shouldn't. And that's not good, but it's not the point. The point is your entry into the, into the banquet doesn't come because of what you've done, but because of his name that is written on that stone. Because he is overcome, you have access. This is the gospel. You can't do it. You can't be saved on your own strength. You need somebody to get you in, and Christ is that somebody. That's the gospel. And this is the encouragement being given to the church. So last, I'll very literally close here. If you're a Christian, rejoice. You have, a, you have the stone with your name. You're going, you, the manna is yours. The stone is yours. Rejoice and live accordingly. If you're not and you're a skeptic, the answer is the same one given here. Repent and you'll find there's a stone waiting. It's very simple. That's the gospel. That's what we're here to do, to worship this great king. Let's pray.